What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. A few weeks ago, I had a panel discussion called Expectations of Our Criminal Justice System. It was an amazing panel of educators and activists in the community. We even had city council member at large, Derek Green, and state senator Vincent Hughes join us for a really in-depth and heartfelt discussion. But by the end of that discussion, what I found is that there is a complete separation of what our expectations of the criminal justice system are versus what the criminal justice system is actually doing. And the same applies for police departments here in Philadelphia, across the state and across the country. The people have a very different expectation of what our police should be doing rather than what they actually are doing. And so when we first heard the term defund the police, a lot of folks got upset because they thought it meant get rid of police. Because by and large, the public believes police are there to protect and serve. They believe police are there to solve crimes. They believe the police are there to mediate situations when by and large, they are simply not doing that. 47% of all crime goes completely unsolved. There is more criminal activity found in neighborhoods of predominantly white people, but less cops in those same neighborhoods. And so you have to ask yourself, if we have police there to solve crime, to engage in situations of, of tense conflict and to address in, in conflict mediation, they aren't really doing that. And we know they aren't doing that last part because we keep seeing black people gunned and murdered and literally being choked to death by the police. And so on today's conversation, I wanted to talk to Marquise Devon. Marquise hosts the Dear Reading and This American Negro podcast. He's an activist and educator in the city of Reading. And he's been on a number of our panels, but I, I felt as though he lent a particular introspective look into what this system that we have in place looks like, how we navigate away from this and into a system that takes into account how do we restore the lives of not just victims, but perpetrators of crimes. But then also, how do we make sure that resources are in place so crime isn't happening? And the why of this is is a conversation that I'm not seeing take place, but I'm glad we're having it on this podcast. Here at Salah's Corner, I am always looking to connect with new people, hear new perspectives, and share new stories. And right now, I want to hear from you. Email me at realtalk at salahscorner.com and we can get your story featured on our next episode. First and foremost, thank you, Salah, for having me. I appreciate you. <laughs> it's been cool like thank being you. on these panels that you've been curating, which have been super, super important. But yeah, my name is Marquise Richards, Marquise Davon across all social media. This American Negro, one-fourth of Dear Redding, uh, black male educator, black person, we out here. But that's a little bit about me. I'm an educator in the Philadelphia area that focuses on bringing hip-hop culture into the um, educational space is really what I do. And, and thank you for, for shouting out at the panels that uh, we've been doing. I need to do another one uh, soon. I, I need to, to sit down on and come up with some ideas for one. I mean, there's plenty of conversations to be had so that shouldn't be too difficult but let's talk a little bit about like where how you have come to your politics where you get your belief systems and things like that right it's it's been a journey to be completely honest it's been a lot of reading just being displaced from my home through my co collegiate experience so just going to a pwi and just experiencing like 
uh, all of these systems at once and being able to finally like have an outside view of the environment that I grew up in, which was super pivotal for me was like, oh, this is like the first time I'm like living outside of what I'm used to in my day to day. And so for me, my politics really shifted when I studied abroad my first year of college. I went to the Czech Republic to study theater and history. And it was just wild because I went to this place called Brno during our trip and out there they have the Romani children. So when I saw the Romani children, those are the brown people. They call them gypsies in the Czech Republic. And there was something eerily familiar about them being pushed mm-hmm. into the ghettos, pushed into the back that just felt like very close to home for me. And so for me, I had like a very visceral moment, like seeing like these injustices and seeing this like purposeful exclusion of this community where they forced them to be invisible but then also this survey went out in the Czech Republic and it was basically like hey like would you ever willingly live next to Romani people right and 98% of the Czech Republic said no and so for me I was like wow. oh that's that's weird <laughs> that, that I didn't is. like that so I just remember just having like this weird transformative inner dialogue where I was just like, yo, this is familiar. This is experience what I experienced at home, but studying abroad doing it. So I was looking back at America in a completely different way. So I think my study abroad is really what informed my politic a lot more. But then it was also just learning more about my history and experiencing racism when I got back from the Czech Republic and being stopped by the cops in a white area and just seeing like, ooh. This was like a very different feeling for me. So I really, it was really that that informed a lot of my politics. And then it was the year after when I studied, when I um, did my internship in New York, when Alton Sterling and Philando Castillo had happened, I was like just mad and I was angry. And I was just like, how do I make sense of everything that's happening right now? And so just reading Mark Lamont Hill's book, Nobody, The Injustices from Ferguson to Flint, Michigan, really changed a lot of my perspective and just saw like all right here's all these things i've read about i thought about i've been trying to like find a language for and i found it in that book so mark lamont hill was really one of my first entry points and just seeing like what does this activism look like what is Hmm. how do you contextualize everything that's going on but then how do i start adopting this language for systems so i was a little later into this process probably 18 or 19 when i was really getting into like this space of radicalized and activism and having to be forced to confront blackness in a very real way. How do you how do you define radical activism from your perspective? Yeah, for me, when I think about radical activism, I I'm just thinking about like what is it's having like the audacity to reimagine a world that we live in is really what this radicalness really comes from is really saying like, no, this is what black people deserve. Um, This is what poor people deserve. This is what brown people deserve. And how do I achieve that by any means necessary? And so for me, it was really just seeing like, oh, a lot of my thoughts, they were just like, oh, Marquise, you're like militant now. You are super radical. You're super pro-black. <laughs> and so for me, it was in that moment where I was just like, oh, in my mind, I was like, I'm just fighting for my people. I didn't realize like it was as radical as it was. I just thought, like, how do I create this space for us to just be? And that was like my biggest issue was because getting to college, it was just like, oh, Marquise, the black person. Oh, Marquise, the black this. It became a very like definitive characteristic for me. And I never really experienced that because like growing up in the city of Reading, it's like black, brown, poor people everywhere. Like Mm -hmm. we're all in this together. So I didn't acknowledge color as much. 
and I didn't realize like how much it affected me. So it was really in that moment where they were just like, yo, you're what you're doing is creating like radical love and a radical black space for other black students and really disrupting a lot that's going on. So for me, I didn't even realize it was radical. I thought I was just doing the right thing. I, I, I asked that because I'm glad you said that because, you know, a, a lot of folks, when they hear radical um, activism or just radical anything, they think of destruction. They think of, you know, physical destruction and physically dismantling systems. You think of the protesters who was in Philly. I don't know if you were made it to Philly through some of the protests, but that were, you know, just taking bats and and hammers and just smashing windows, you know, as part of the protest. And so a lot of folks uh, partner that up with radical. So I wanted you to be able to explain that for folks to under really understand that radical doesn't mean that I want to destroy everything or I just want to randomly break property. It means a radical assessment of of blackness. <laughs> and, yeah, and that's demanding really what, what that is. Yeah. You know, so I one of the reasons why I, I wanted to have you be on this particular podcast talking about defunding police, because I feel like you have a, a very specific ability to articulate it in ways that others can't. But also because you come from it, from that, your def- definition of radical that allows for a, a very deep introspective look into what defunding police looks like without being apologetic about it. Right. And so you know, let's I, I really want to dive into that as far as like what what how are you taking that term defund the police and and what do you make of the rhetoric on a on a you know local and national level that's come out of, of this movement? I think it's been super interesting, like <laughs> what this whole idea is. So for me, a lot of this like radical thought like steeped in prison abolition theory and um, just like that's that's my jam right there is like honestly we gotta get rid of it because it's obviously not helping and not actually rehabilitating and doing what it needs to do so i think defunding the police is a step towards that and it's steeped in very much so prison abolition and that whole theory behind that radical thought and stuff but for right now when we're living in these confines and we have to find like this meeting place of if they have to exist in this area that we live in as police as a police force when I say about defunding the police, it's understanding that the police force not only usually gets the majority of a budget when it comes to city breakdowns in terms of like who's receiving what and everything, but it's also understanding that you can now look into things that police are also like getting money for and like where our tax dollars are going. So I did not realize that police actually get a paid holiday for their birthdays and we come, we're paying for that. <laughs> I said, wait, what? Mm-hmm. That's what we're paying for. That's where this extra money is going. And so it's really for us to now start taking a deep dive into what these politics look like and where these budgets are actually going into. It's going into patrolling. It's going into surveillance. It's going into these different trainings that they're supposed to be getting. Right. But nothing we actually see is really coming out of it. So when we talk about defunding the police, it's simply another way to say reallocation of funds because they receive such a significant portion. But when you do talk about um, these reallocation of funds, you're investing in community. You're investing in the people, not the police. So when you invest in the people, you give people a chance for equitable living. You give people a chance for an equitable life. You give people basic human needs. And so once you do that, crime inherently will go down. A lot of things, oftentimes people are just like, well, there's this crime-ridden area and there's this, this, and this. But they're not even talking about that slow, painful drip of state-sanctioned violence that happens a lot of the time. So you cannot expect me to be my best self if I'm not eating. 
if I don't have hot water at home, if I don't have my basic needs to be able to just exist. And we've seen this inequity happen because of COVID. So that exposed all of the inequities. Yeah. And being an educator, I saw that like, oh, every student should have Wi-Fi at home. No, they don't. <laughs> every student should have like three hot meals a day or three meals a day. No, most times kids are going to school to get their hot meal for breakfast and lunch. And if they're in an after school program, that's where they're going to eat. Right. And so it's really understanding that when you take a look at this budget and realize not only are the police getting a significant amount of money for a lot of very irrelevant things, but they are also taking away from the community and they're doing this thing to uphold the space of staying poor in a low income area as well. So we know from research Increased policing doesn't mean safer streets. Increased policing actually means you're disrupting a family structure more oftentimes than not. Disrupt um, More policing means that as you disrupt that family structure, now there's only one income in the house. Now the child has to start working much faster. So when you see how all of these things start to trickle into one another, you disrupt the family, you disrupt the income, the food insecurity starts to pop up, and then they also can't perform well in school. And then we know if they're not being able to perform well in school and they drop out, that leads to the school to prison pipeline. So it's all of these things that are very interconnected. But if we don't take that time to genuinely invest in a community, then there's no possible way for us to say, we want this community to get better and we don't want you to keep living in these typical, like these cyclical things, cycle of poverty, right? So just understanding like if the police are getting like hundreds of millions of dollars and just knowing like what that hundreds of million dollars can do if you simply put that into building out rec programs, getting after school programs funded so students can eat and just investing in the community, you'll see so much more of a healthier community. You'll see people who know how to navigate a lot more if you think about mental health spaces, when you think about actual resources, when you're not living in food deserts. We see all of these things and we talk about it all the time, but now that we have the opportunity to do so, there seems to be this very weird pushback because people can't reimagine what public safety looks like without police there or what happens when we don't need police as much. And I think that's a weird, it's a very human fear because we've been indoctrinated with these cops are supposed to protect us. But it's this weird thing of like, as a black person, we say we want them to protect us, but at the same time, we also see these murders happening across the nation over these years. So it's like this weird <laughs> um, cognitive dissonance that we're starting to have in the middle of these conversations. It, you know, it, it's kind of crazy. I, I've been going on a number of different talks and honestly rants really about this topic because there is a, a very serious misunderstanding of what police do versus what we expect them to do or what we think they do, right? Like we, we expect them or we believe that they are, you know, creating safe neighborhoods. They're not, right? They also aren't solving crime as, as much as we think they are, you know, right? Like what, what I think it's a 47%, you know, on average a crime goes completely unsolved. And so it's, it's almost like we're, we're putting all of this money into this system, but not expecting tangible results from it. Right. On top of that, you, you have, you know, an inherent and, and structural racism that's embedded into it all. Right. And so, you know, from from a larger perspective, you know, when I think about the racism piece, I think of like, OK, well, criminal justice system as a whole is is a problem. Can we even have conversations on talking about reforms and changing expectations of police without having that larger discussion on like our entire criminal justice system needs an overhaul? We 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 can't just focus on reforming police. 
Right. And that's that's been my thing. I don't think reform is enough, to be completely honest. Because we have this idea, like, when we if we just look at historically, like, what was the police nation, like, what was the police force even started out for? It was a catch, runaway slave. So when we think about, like, their, our, their history and, like, why they were created and the purpose of them... It's only transformed the same way that slavery has transformed into mass incarceration. Does um, slave patrol just formed into the police department, right? And so it's a very, like, it's historically disingenuous for us to, like, separate these two because they're still operating out of white supremacy is their bread and butter. That's their foundation, and that's how it started. Now, we have people who try to work within the system. We have people who try to dismantle it from the outside. But oftentimes, those who are working within the system, if they're trying to actively do it and do the actual work, they're usually kicked out. Or they're usually ostracized from the rest of it. Or they do things to get them out um, as well. So they can uphold this brotherhood, this (laughs) fraternal order to be all together, right? But then you also have this concept of, well, also there's good cops and we should really worry about the humans and the individuals and stuff. But oftentimes when we do talk about that, I try to divorce the human from the system. Because, yeah, there's good people. But you also participate in a system that is actually actively murdering people and allowing you to get away with murder at the same time. So Mm -hmm. we cannot do something like that when the culture around police and policing is so embedded with getting their blood on their hands and them allowed to get away with it. So you cannot reform a system that's strictly designed to kill black people, that's designed to kill poor people, designed to disenfranchise women, trans people, queer people everywhere when we have these conversations. So when I talk about this, I and why I'm from more of an abolitionist standpoint is really just like, how can we also reimagine like, what does this look like? Because you can talk about people in the police who go into prison or who are arrested and they get out and we assume like, oh, you've been arrested for 10 years. You've been in prison for 10 years. You should know better now and you shouldn't want to go back. But you're not actually restoring community. You're not actually giving them the tools to say, I did this harm. Here's how I can fix this harm. And here's how I can prevent it from happening again. And also, let's talk about what got me there, too. And that's going to be the added layer of it. So we can talk about restorative justice, which it really is more so for the person to person. But then you take it a layer, a step even further and think about transformative justice, which forces us to acknowledge the, the conditions that got a person to this space as well and so that's something we have to really think about that's exactly uh, uh, such a crucial point right because we, we 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 don't actually address why a crime was committed right we're we're really just throwing police at it and saying you know keep people in line and if they don't you know basically you can kill them and it's so bizarre to me that we don't actually figure out ways to okay have let's have conversations on why crime is actually taking place let's re reevaluate our resources and dollars that we put into policing and figure out okay well why do we have so many brothers you know out in 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 you know, not in schools, can't find jobs, don't have access to health care, you know, community centers and schools are closing down. Like, why are all of these things taking place versus let's just put police in their neighborhoods after we shut all of their resources down? And it's like there's this disconnect in this conversation. I feel like both on a national and even local levels that all of our conversations is talking about taking dollars from police and naturally putting in resources, you know, like in schools, like after school programs, like rec centers, you know, but not enough on actually addressing the systemic issues that are embedded in communities that are driving folks to a life of 
crime. Are you seeing that same disconnect taking shape? Like, and and I, I know you've had conversations with with elected officials in Reading, and you've been a part of our panel uh, discussions. Do you feel as though folks are making that connection as to why defunding is necessary and why we need to have larger conversations on on changing our criminal justice system? I I can even talk about my hometown in particular, and just seeing it from like a local level. If, and I just had a um, conversation with Helen Gim three or four days ago. Awesome. So it's really cool to have ha- have her as a council person at large because she's already in this space of wanting to defund the police mm-hmm. and really understanding like what this looks like. So just seeing someone like her being able to be in this space to do something like that and know how to properly advocate for it, I'm realizing in my hometown, they are not equipped with the language and they don't understand that critical thought that goes into why something like this should happen or why this something like this is important. So they don't even have the forethought or the imagination to understand defunding the police is a preventative measure to ensure that our community is doing better at the end of the day. And that's a very hard concept for them to understand because for them in my hometown, they're just like, no, the police are necessary. And our mayor is an ex-cop. Right. So he was in the criminal. He was in the um, police force in the 80s and 90s during the crack epidemic in New York. So he so he has a very particular relationship. So Mm -hmm. I already realized any time that I'm talking about defunding the police, it's not going to register for him at all, uh, because that idea to him doesn't make sense because police for him means protection of a community, means safer streets in a community, as opposed to understanding like, no, if you're a person of the people, then you should be able to understand what happens when you invest in the people. And they're like, oh, well, Reading's already too poor, so we went into Act 47. So Act 47 means that so many police cuts were already going to happen and we're already strapped for money as it is in terms of our budget. Reading has a $97 million budget. The Reading Police Department receives 41% of that budget. So when you start breaking down these numbers, we've realized that we not only have to discredit the police in this kind of movement that we're going to start moving into, but then also having community buy-in because this radical idea, the young people and Gen Z, I notice, are really, really about it. But some older folks, some are about it and they see like, no, there is like young people are saying these things. But I think it's something hard for us to hold local officials accountable because we also eat next to them at a local shop. We also call them our neighbors sometimes. And so it's like this weird moment where they feel as if it's a personal attack, but not understanding like, hey, if you rise up to this particular role, we are allowed to now critique you from a policy standpoint. And if you are no longer representing the people, then we are allowed to be angry because your policy is so close and tied to our livelihood. And I think that's hard for someone to understand, like your ineptitude and your inability to create radical change or at least significant and meaningful change means that you're going to create further harm. And that is also part of holding you accountable. Right. And so it's very difficult for our mayor, who is a super lovable person. Like, I love him as the individual. Now, as the mayor, I have my critiques because he's moving very slow in terms of uh, black life and actually like what it looks like to have a low income community at the same time. And then my last point on it really is just understanding who has to rise up in that kind of situation as well. So right now I kind of catapulted myself into a very particular leadership in Reading, Pennsylvania, (laughs) but I don't know shit. I don't know anything about writing policy. Right. And so I'm just like, all right, so how do I find the right people to get put in place? Because I know what needs to happen. I know what these demands look like. But now to get it into an actual item 
and actually see what this policy looks like. But also understanding all of this work of policy means that if I don't have enough people on the inside who are with me, this is very much so very easy for them to just be like, well, that's nice. Thanks for the information. But we're not going to pass this. And that's the kind of time I don't think a lot of us are here for anymore because there's a lot of impatience happening. But the next budget meeting is in six months for us. So we have a six month window of essentially being able to sway, gather a lot of people and apply this public pressure. But also what happens when we start kind of redefining what our culture looks like and arming people with the language and knowledge about that too. So we're really trying to take this freedom school approach of like, nah, like let's actually start radicalizing these young folks, but also make sure that we're giving them the proper knowledge so this way they can also navigate in these spaces too. So local politics right now, even today, they had like a whole photo op with the cops. They're doing like a whole PR move right now. Mm. Just like, here's why cops are important. Look, all these fireworks. Look, now we're going to use like these spikes and shootings that happened in all of these major cities across the U.S. as an example as to why these cops are going to be necessary. And they're never going to even look at the fact that there are systems and policies put in place that force us to live in these conditions more and more. So now it's going to talk about here's why police are necessary versus why we could have prevented a shooting like this in the long run. You know, it's, it's funny you said that. I made, a, I made a video and wrote, you know, a blog post about that specifically, about how we're going to see the conversation start to deflect on either a high profile criminal case or, you know, increase in, in, you know, certain types of criminal activity as the need for more police and bigger police budgets as a way of, you know, bait and switch in the, in the conversation. You mentioned two things earlier. It was restorative justice and transformational justice. How does you know, talk about that as it relates to our current system, which is the criminal justice system. So the criminal justice system is extremely punitive. It's basically saying, you did this bad thing, you need to go away, you should be removed from society, here's how we're going to do it. And it's a slap on a wrist, or in the worst cases, it's murder that happens because this person should did such this such an egregious thing, right? Restorative justice, when we look at that, it's an approach that essentially like has the harmed and the person who committed the harm come together, right? So you have this conversation of what did you, what harm did you cause? And then asking the other person, what do you need? Because oftentimes we think like, oh, well, we want this person to be put away because you punched this person. So we're going to put you away for X, Y, and Z. But in reality, this person was probably just lashing out, right? And so we don't even think of asking the first question of like, why did you do this? And if you ever ask somebody, and I even look at my students, why did you do that? They're like, uh, 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 well, I was hungry and I felt this way and this is why I did it, right? One of my students, they lashed out at another student because they were making fun of his dark skin and that's why he lashed out. But the one who got in trouble was the one who lashed out, right? So sometimes it's just asking that first question, why? So restorative justice is meant to restore somebody from the harm that was committed to that person, but knowing how to bring both of these people to a very particular agreement to make sure that they're taken care of. So when we talk about that in the context of the criminal justice system, it's starting to think about how do we restore this person as well that committed this harm? So now if we're throwing somebody in prison, are you actually giving them tools of therapy? Are you giving them the proper medication if they need the medication? Are you also allowing this space of healing as well and are you allowing this reconciliation to happen between the person who was harmed and who did the harm, right? So that's how, essentially how restorative justice works. It really focuses on the individuals that were at play in these systems. Whereas transformative justice, this one focuses a lot more on 
how did we get to that point? <laughs> and it starts asking the questions of why, but it also forces us to acknowledge these systems and it forces us to acknowledge policies that have been put in place to get us there. So somebody stole some food, right? We hooray for Robin Hood, but we also celebrate the fact that he's actually giving food. He's giving to the hungry. He's giving to the poor. He's returning this money back. So it's really understanding when we think about transformative justice, it's now acknowledging like, this person committed, uh, stole this food because they were hungry, because this system actually, they live in a food desert. So now you have to actually talk about food insecurity. So each of these things line back. So the more you ask why and peel back the layers more and more, you get to the core of what this is. And oftentimes it's food insecurity, it's lack of resources at home, it's lack of mental health centers and resources around for the community, joblessness, homelessness, all play like a big role in this. So it's really understanding like, oh, these things, these core issues and these societal ills are the reason that these crimes even had to be committed, right? Because this person's simply trying to be on survival mode. And once I'm trying to eat, I'm going to find a way to eat. <laughs> I'm not right. about to be starving out here. So it's really understanding like, hey, transformative justice forces us to acknowledge the systems at play. And once we have to acknowledge those systems, now you have to turn your head on like, who are the participants in upholding this system? But how do we also start to dismantle those systems at the same time? You made a, a fantastic description of it. We start asking the questions of why. Like, why was this crime committed? Not necessarily just, you know, like, why was this done to the victim and how can we punish the person? Because right now we have such an adversarial system where we literally just we're, we're pinning one person against the other or the state against, you know, this perpetuator of a crime. And it, 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 we never actually ask the question which gets to the root cause of why so many crimes are committed is to, is to why. And to me, it's like, if, how do we expect to ever actually address why crime is perpetuating in so many neighborhoods and communities if we're not asking the question on why it's taking place to begin with, right? And it's just like, how do you get people to even start thinking from that perspective versus, you know, something happened to me, I want this person punished immediately, and I, and, and I want to be made whole. And then that's kind of the end. Not like, I, I, you know, financially whole, usually not actually healing from being a victim not actually being a part of of the community healing as well, because that's a, that's also an attack on the community. And so, like, how do you start having folks really think a little bit deeply about asking those why questions and changing their mindset from this adversarial system to to transformational justice? Yeah. And that's the hard part. I even think about restorative justice and trying to implement that with my students. And they're just like, whoa, you're asking me, like, why, why I did this? They're like, Mr. Keats, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's also just rewiring a lot of people's brains. We can even just think about black folk in general. Oftentimes, it's stay in a child's place or mm -hmm. um, go to the corner or I'm going to beat you, get the switch, whatever, whatever that looks like. Right. So our immediate thing is to harm and be punitive and punish. And so for us... Oftentimes we're just conditioned because that's just what's generational this stuff looked like. And we get weirded out when students or when kids are able to like articulate, hey, I am bothered right now. Can I have a couple minutes before I come back and talk to you? Right. We and we talk about that. They'd be like, we saw that even happen on Twitter. They're like, my kid would never talk to me that way. Mm -hmm. But now we're also asking people who are in survival mode to also have to deal with emotional intelligence and build up this kind of stuff as well. So if I'm worried about, am I getting food at the end of the night? 
or if I'm getting hot water at the end of the night, that's on the forefront of my mind at the end of the day. So I, I got to college and I had the privilege of being able to do all this introspection work and the work that they talk about. Because now I have the privilege of being able to move that way and feeling a little bit more secure in my position than I was when I was first growing up. Like when I was growing up, I'm just like, well, I got to suck it up and I got to keep pushing. But in reality, I was just suppressing my trauma so that way I can just survive and keep it pushing, right? And so it's also understanding that we're also asking people who are living day to day to start thinking in the long term, to start doing that introspection work because most of the stuff that we got to get done oftentimes is really external. All right, let me go to my work. Let me go to my job now. All right, I got food. I got money. My kids are taken care of. Bet. So it's also once we, once again, give the resources in a community for an equitable life, now we can start thinking in longer terms. I sometimes get upset when people are just like, well, why didn't you just think about this then? No, I I gotta, I gotta survive. I gotta make sure my family is taken care of. Like I'm the middle of five and I had a single parent growing up. So I was just like, we didn't have that ability. So even when I came back from college and my family's like, oh, Marquise, you're like, oh, send out and stuff. Like, da, da, da. I'm like, no, it's just, I was able to be in a space where I can just be as opposed to thinking about how am I going to survive at the end of the day. And so it's just really understanding, like, that's really where it starts is like, how do I give myself equitable living to actually start being able to say, oh, let me actually think about why I'm feeling this way and then go from there. Right. And I think that's the part that's hard about thinking about how do we reimagine this restorative aspect and start seeing it? Well, first, when you get the resources that I can actually start moving in this space, then we can have that conversation. But until then, it's going to be very difficult. And it's almost arrogant and pretentious of us to even say, oh, everybody should start thinking this way. When in reality, people are still trying to just eat. (laughs) And all I care about is what's in my fridge. So just remembering the human aspect and knowing that this is going to be a very slow burn when we talk about transformative justice and also restorative justice practices in our everyday life because it's a new concept to people. Yeah, it's it, it really is a, a complete separation from essentially what America was was founded on, right? You know, this this adversarial system of of you know pinning us against each other when when crime takes place, but then also this expectation, this societal expectation that folks who who have done without, who you know are in poverty conditions, are supposed to have the exact same emotional intelligence as those who, you know, don't have to worry about where their next right. meal is coming from. Right, are worried about fucking weed to deal with their stuff <laughs> right. while right. white kids in the suburbs are getting therapy. Like, right. Like, right. Right. middle, upper class get therapy and they're just like, hey, we can put you in this place. Where other kids are less like, let me self-medicate or let me find, like, an outlet to make sense of things or at least distract myself long enough so I can just go home, eat, sleep, poop, go to go to bed, go to school, do what I need to do. So those are two very different, like, ways of navigating life it, it makes me think of like you know every every once in a while whenever i do like talks or panels or, or something someone always asks me about like how i feel about reparations and you know my thought immediately goes to providing black people with unlimited you know free i mean i i, I think everyone should have free health care but when we have specific conversations on reparations for black people like i think that's a number one necessity for us because you know, there is so much trauma, both either done to us and inherently we, we, we try to 
ignore within ourselves because that, you know, that tough, tough man exterior that we try to withhold that we either pass down generationally and we can't overcome our own obstacles, you know, to seeing success. You know, how do you feel about the healing aspect of the black community as we try to, because I, I, I feel as though as we continuously navigate this conversation and continuously look to build community, we have to constantly keep in mind our own mental health. Because otherwise, the progress that we hope to see won't get there because we've we've become broken. So how how do you think about that as it relates to seeing all this change? Yeah, I think um, seeing a communal change really, I always think about it like I feel like we'll move into more of like a very maternal kind of like more feminine energy is going to kind of go into it. Um, because when we have to think about community um, we also have to think about how we're showing up for one another. We have to think about how we heal in plenty of different ways, but then also reimagine the environment that we're in. Because oftentimes when we see these bigger depictions of our community, we're seeing like the thugs, we're seeing the OGs, we're seeing all these different symbols that mean something to us, right? But for me, I, when I talk about hip hop culture and education, it's just like, I'm not a traditional educator. Like I'm in the after school space, but then I'm also educating on podcasts. I use my conversations, but then also like my barber, I would say is like probably my first therapist. I had the same barber for 15 years, <laughs> right? So one, when we think about different ways and spaces of comfort and being able to name them for what they are, I think that's super crucial for us to do so. So I'm just like, when I think about Willie, I'm just like, yo, I really talked about him, talked with him about some real life stuff, like <laughs> that I didn't like open up to like family about and stuff. So I think that's one, but it's also when we talk about communal healing, it's being able to acknowledge the harm that we may have caused to one another and knowing how to start moving from that too. I think the hardest part in this entire thing when we start moving is having to acknowledge like, I did a bad thing. So does that make me a bad person or can I grow from this? And I think that's the hard part because nobody wants to be a bad person at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. So it's being able to acknowledge that you could have potentially participated in harming of somebody else and knowing how to move from that space. But then when you also talk about this at the same time, it's still being able to say like, oh, these people, above these people who have power and to create policy that can change my life also need to know the harm that they're committing. But I think if we're talking just from an intercommunal standpoint, it's just starting to move in a space where we know how to talk to one another, where we know how to step up when we see some crazy stuff happening and being comfortable to do so without thinking that, oh, I, they'll be all right. Somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it kind of thing like that too. So it's really just acknowledging the pain that we feel and validating the pain that we feel, but also understanding like, hey, I am not a bad person because I, I may have messed up and starting to figure out how to embrace these mistakes. And I think that's kind of hard right now for us to do because we're in the age of like cancel culture and stuff. So when we mm -hmm. think about how people operate, there's no restoration that actually happens for anybody because we're thinking like, ah, I got to be on a moral high ground. I got to know everything. I can't mess up. I have to be this person, person, and I think that's actually a detriment to development of a community because we're trying to live in a utopia, but in reality, that's not it. <laughs> and, and it also, there's no incentive 
for you to admit your mistakes either, right? Because like in the back of your mind, no matter, I, I know for me personally, I, I can say, you know, with the, the different mistakes I've made in my life, I, I wanted to heal from them. I wanted to admit them. I wanted to move forward. But in the back of my mind, there is this idea that there is no incentive to, right? Because you will get canceled or you will in this relationship or you will be fired or whatever the case may be. There's a consequence and not a, a path to restorative justice. You know, so even in our own personal you know, that that's that's how we really approach things. I want to we're going to take a quick break and then I want to come back and I we're going to end this on a on a lighter note. Six random ass questions. We call this segment The Corner. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody. I know throughout this pandemic, everyone has been saying we're all in this together. Well, here at Salas Corner, I want to really hear from you and what you're enduring during this pandemic. Give us a call and leave us a voice memo, and we'll play that on our next episode of Salas Corner. That number is 267-225-5891. Share with me your thoughts, your feelings, things that you're doing to survive during this pandemic, and you'll get your memo featured on the next episode of Salas Corner. Thank you, Marquise. A fantastic interview. We call this segment The Corner because we are reimagining what Brothers on the Corner look like. And so sometimes it's just sitting back and shooting the shit. So we got six random questions just to end the interview on a on a laughing note. So question number one, what's a guilty pleasure that you have that you can't live without? A guilty pleasure that I have that I can't live without honey buns. I love honey buns and they have to be little Debbie's honey buns. <laughs> Yo, I just recently bought my, my stepdaughter like a box of honey buns, the little Debbie honey buns. Oh my god, I couldn't eat them. It was too it was too sweet. Like I was like, "Oh my god, I'm getting old. Like this is too much. It's too much." All right. Question number 2. What's a popular opinion that most people have but you disagree with? A popular opinion of Star Wars. I don't think Star Wars was that good. <laughs> oh, oh my god. I, I, I can't might believe have to go you said that. You watch it as an adult. <laughs> um, but I thought I was like this is so boring. <laughs> oh man. I I went All right, so Unrelated to the questions, when when did you originally watch it and feel that way? Probably middle school. Middle school? Yeah. I am a huge Star Wars fan. I, I'll say that you were too young to to let it wrap its arms around you. It's 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 actually if you ever get a chance to go back and watch it, there are a lot of themes that are present today and you know, our American. That's government. what somebody was telling me. They're like Marquise, knowing you today. Yeah. You'll have a new appreciation for yep, it. So yep, I have this thing will. called the broccoli yep. theory. So I'll try something again. Because when I was younger, I didn't like broccoli. But as I got older, I was like, ooh, broccoli's actually not that bad. So I enjoy it with every meal now. So <laughs> I'm going to try it again. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see your journey on that. All right. Question number three. If you could live anywhere, where would it be? Ooh, that's a great question. Lately, I've been wanting to go to Ghana. Yeah. The year of return happened last year. Last year. Have you ever been to Ghana? Originally, like this year, I was supposed to actually go back to the, my places of origin. So my dad's mm. side of family's from Puerto Rico and my mom's side of family's from Barbados. So those were going to be on my trips and then COVID happened. So yeah, put a damper on everybody's travel plans this year. All right. Question number four. How do you respond to overly aggressive drivers? Oh, I'm a shit talker. So I'm going to just cuss them out at the same time. I'm, I also don't have a permit or a license. So That's I'm usually the one talking crap from the passenger seat. And they're like, Marky, why are you mad? Because you're mad and they did the bad thing. <laughs> Listen, as a, as a passenger, you got to be ride or die. You can't be a, on the other team. 
You in the car with me. All right, question number five. What's a stereotype about your demographic that does not apply to you? That does not apply to me. So as a man, as being black, as being from Reading, what's a stereotype that doesn't apply? I actually didn't love basketball growing up. I played it to appease my mom, but I actually hated it. I don't want to watch the NBA. I think it's boring. You're just going back and forth on the court. I'm just There are times where I can get into it because I know how the game works. Yeah. But in reality, I'm just like, eh. A lot of brothers actually feel that way. That's interesting. All right. And my final question is, if you could go back in time and give your adolescent self a word of advice, what would it be? Go to HBCU. <laughs> It'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. I yes. just, I wish they would have pushed it more when I was growing up and just whatever that looked like. But a lot of it, it, it didn't feel like there was like a big push for HBCUs. And I thoroughly want that experience. So I'm thinking about doing a master's at an HBCU. Any specific university you're looking at? Nothing specific yet, but I definitely know like now that I found my passion in space, spaces of education, I think I want to go into urban education. Before it was actually theater for social justice. I want to get my PhD in, but... I think ed- urban education and seeing what I can do in that field is really my long term. Marquise Richards, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Thank you for, for stopping by the corner and having this very insightful conversation. Can you tell the folks where they can find all your content? Yes. One, first and foremost, thank you, Salah, for having me. I appreciate your platform. I'm such a huge fan. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I was like, yes, I'm be on it. <laughs> thank uh, <you. laughs> But also, you can find me um, at Marquise Davon on all social media platforms. That's M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E-D-A-V-O-N. This American Negro, you can listen to on all platforms. And actually, that's going through a whole rebranding. So I just had our one-year anniversary on Juneteenth, which is super cool. But now I'm going to be adding panelists to the show, which is going to be really fun to dissect some academic research and break it down with some more people but then also you can, i'm one fourth of dear redding so you can listen to dear redding on soundcloud and also apple podcast that's dear rdg if you would like to hear a more responsible breakfast club of our hometown we address local politics local news but then also pop culture black culture stuff in particular and we try to highlight one positive thing happening in the community as well other than that, you can soonly catch me on an episode of The Grapevine TV talking about police abolition nice. and a couple other nice. spaces. So, yeah. Twitter is where I live at, though. That's my favorite. Listen, wait. Before I go, you you know, I very often see you. I think it's I, I find it hilarious and also just like, you know, I feel as though black people are oftentimes when you walk into a room, not acknowledged. But you you often say, you know, good morning to niggas and niggas only. I really want to know what what's, what's that about. I I think it really started from, if you ever listen to Solange's album, A Seat at the Table, mm-hmm. she just talks about all my niggas in the whole wide world. So it really started out as like, good morning to um, all my niggas in the whole wide world. And then I don't know how good morning to niggas and niggas only <laughs> like happened, but then it just stuck. And now like people are just like, Marquise, you did not tweet good morning to niggas and niggas only this morning. Like, what are you doing? And a lot of people are just like, no, I actually look forward to that. So I'm just like, I know when I get some merch, that's going to be the first thing I put on. <laughs> like Facts. a mug. <laughs> yes, seriously. I mean, because I I, 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 I I sat and thought about it and I was like, yo, this is funny as hell. But then I thought about it a little deeply and I was like, yo, how many times you go into a room at, you know, especially being like the only or the token or, you know, maybe a few black people and like you're not acknowledged. So like, yeah, good morning to niggas only. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Marquise. It was a pleasure. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you, man. Once again, I want to thank Marquise for 
continuously being a huge supporter of the podcast and of this platform for always appearing on my panels at the drop of a dime when I throw them out to him. And for this this really great conversation, I, I think this is one I want to have been having for a while, you know, talking about what our expectations are versus what the reality is, because I think that's how we'll get others around to this conversation, that when we start to ask them what their expectation of criminal justice looks like, what their expectation of policing looks like, it doesn't line up unless they're racist, frankly, but it doesn't line up with what's actually taking place in communities across the country. Furthermore, that last point he talked about, the why, the why crime is taking place, right? Why someone committed a burglary or murder or rape or an assault is just as important as the healing on the other side of it, because the healing can't take place both for the victim and perpetrators of crimes if we never address why it actually took place, because ultimately that person that's the perpetuator of said crime was a victim first, a victim of lack of resources, a victim of that same crime possibly even happening to them. And so what this podcast always tries to do is, is have you think a little bit deeply about the decisions that we have to make in order to, to be whole as a society? And how do we think a little bit more deeply into changing systems that inherently don't work for black people? Thank you for tuning in. You can always email me your questions, your feedback, your disagreements at realtalk at salascorner.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It is how others get to see this platform and how my voice can spread into many ear holes. Thank you as always. And until next time, peace y'all.